Hi, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. One of the things we learned about at Voices 2018 was the growing power of mega technology companies. And one area in which they are all competing is the field of artificial intelligence. Could this growing arms race in AI create a whole new kind of geopolitics? This was something that Ian Hogarth spoke about at Voices 2018. Ian believes that machine learning will transform the economy and the military so unrecognizably that it will create instability at the national and international level, requiring further government intervention. Ian is an angel investor in over 40 startups, where the main focus of his investing is in applied machine learning. Previously, he co-founded Songkick, the concert service used by 17 million music fans every month to discover live events. So here's Ian Hogarth, on the emerging geopolitics of AI at Voices 2018. So yeah, I wrote, a, I wrote an essay on this topic that was 6,600 words long um, because it turns out that AI and geopolitics are quite big topics. Um, so I'm gonna try and do the, the 10 minute version for you now. So I'll be talking maybe a little bit quicker than um, some of the other speakers. So uh, the central prediction that I want to make to you is that continued rapid progress in machine learning is driving uh, a new kind of geopolitics called AI nationalism. And the last few years have seen pretty amazing developments in machine learning, and I wanted to sort of just start off by recapping what's happened and, and why I think we're going through a period of profound change. So firstly, as a few examples of uh, research in machine learning, image recognition um, by machines has started to achieve human-level accuracy at very complex pattern recognition tasks, for example, skin cancer classification. We've also seen big steps forward in things like machine translation, where Microsoft's system um, has achieved human parity in translation of uh, news articles from Chinese to English. Um, and those are examples of a technique called uh, deep learning, which was invented a while back, but has started to really work with the amount of data and computing power we now have. Um, another technique that has started to be pioneered and really work is called uh, deep reinforcement learning, and you'll hear a lot more about that over the coming years. And the most profound example of it in the last few years is when DeepMind defeated the world champion at Go um, using a system named AlphaGo. And the way that system works is a uh, reinforcement learning agent basically uh, figures out how to compete and succeed in an environment using techniques modeled on the brain's dopamine system. And from the time that I started studying machine learning back in, I guess, 2003, um, Go was always this final frontier. You know, when we get to Go, we've done it all, right? And so this uh, deep reinforcement learning agent winning against the world champion at Go was a really big deal. Uh, but what I think was a, a bigger deal still was what came next, because AlphaGo was trained on a uh, 30 million moves by human Go players, and that was kind of what it learned from. Um, 18 months later, DeepMind developed something I think uh, was a lot more significant, which is AlphaZero. And AlphaZero um, did not use any moves from human players. Instead, in some sort of like nutty black box, it just played against itself ferociously, millions and millions and millions of times, and in the process of competing against sense itself, developed an intelligence at playing the game of Go that superseded what AlphaGo had been able to do. Um, which is nuts, right, in its own right, that's nuts. But then in addition to that, they took the same system that had beaten the AlphaGo system, and they sat it down in front of, I mean, figuratively, right, sat it down in front of um, the world's best chess computer, crushed it, 
world's best show GU computer, beat it. Um, and so, you know, leading machine learning researchers that I've spoken to, they've all sort of spoken about this kind of uncanny feeling you have when you see a system that has no human information fed into it, um, ending up being more competent and exhibiting more transferable intelligence into other domains. So that's research. In commercialization, there's also been amazing progress from you know, search engines like Google and Baidu to warehouse optimization like Amazon to ad targeting um, to many new areas like self-driving cars, cybersecurity, um, drug discovery, robotics. And as an angel investor, I'm always kind of amazed at how many weird nooks and crannies machine learning is currently creeping into. And as just like a funny example, I invest in a business that is currently uh, using machine learning to optimize the farming of insects at extreme scale. And their belief is doing that will get the cost of insect protein down and it can replace fish meal and industrial food chains. Right? I didn't think that machine learning was infecting, affecting the insect growing industry at the moment. So that's what's happening in machine learning. If you accept that that's all happening and it's all happening kind of in a way that we should all be a little bit unnerved by the speed of progress, why does it matter to a state? Well, there's three main ways in which accelerating progress in machine learning could create instability in the international order. Commercial applications of machine learning will create vast new businesses and they will, uh, they will destroy millions of jobs. And in the extreme case, the country that invests the most aggressively in this technology could end up in a position of economic kind of supremacy. Machine learning will also enable amazing kind of things we can't even imagine in the world of warfare, both sophisticated cyber offense and defense capabilities, but also various forms of autonomous and semi-autonomous weaponry. For example, the uh, long-range anti-ship missile that Lockheed Martin are currently developing. And again, in this extreme case, the country that invests the most aggressively could end up in a position of military supremacy. And I think the thing that's least discussed, but I, I personally sort of... Uh, think is, that is the biggest deal is that eventually a general progress in AI, things like AlphaZero, will enable a fundamental speed up in scientific research and, and technology development as a whole. And that could be the most profound source of instability because you could end up with a state that has, for example, you know, the first viable fusion reactor or technologies we can't even imagine today. So in the extreme case, the state that invests the most aggressively could end up in the strongest position technologically. And I, I mean, basically a shorthand for Wakanda in that, in that, um, in that movie. Um, so all this is sort of the case because machine learning is a uniquely omni-use technology. And, and the reason for that is kind of simple, and it, it's, it's worth dwelling on, which is that everything we see when we look around us is a product of human intelligence shaping natural resources, right? So the more we create synthetic intelligence um, that comes close to human level ability, it will touch almost everything around us, right? So it's tricky to think through how that's going to impact politics, but we have some examples we can draw from, in particular, nuclear technology and oil. Nuclear technology, because it was a dual-use technology, you know, it started out as a sort of scientific research endeavor that, that then sort of ended up with military and, and, and civilian uses. And the most profound transformation that nuclear technology had on the geopolitics was it basically ended mass war, because once you have nukes, you, you can't really have world wars like World War I and World War II. Um, oil, uh, as a general purpose technology, sort of expanded from lighting to heating to an enormous range of uh, military and industrial and, and civilian uses. And both of those technologies have had a huge impact on geopolitics that sort of happened after the technology hit a level of maturity. And at this point, state actors became prime movers and remain so today. So 
Ambitious governments have started already to see machine learning as the core differentiating general purpose technology of the 21st century, and there's already a race underway. So in developing that, I think China is kind of the, 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 the most helpful example to talk about because they saw themselves as behind the US in AI policy and developed an aggressive set of AI policies to catch up. They introduced an explicit goal developed at the highest level of government that they would be the world leader in AI by 2030. Uh, they created um, a, what they're calling the Big Fund, which is a $140 billion fund to invest in China's homegrown semiconductor industry. And that semiconductors might not seem like the thing you want to invest in if you care about AI, but most of the biggest breakthroughs we've seen commercially and research-wise in AI over the last few years have been enabled by increasing semiconductor performance. And China is in a, in a relatively vulnerable position when it comes to semiconductors because their imports of semiconductors from other countries are now greater than their imports of oil, and they're spending something like $260 billion a year importing semiconductors. The effects of China's aggressive state-led uh, mandate around AI have started to be felt. So there's a guy called Andrew Moore who is a, um, a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon, and he has estimated that the percentage of research papers submitting, submitted to the leading AI conferences by um, Chinese researchers has increased from 5% to 50% over the last 10 years. But beyond research, Chinese uh, AI startups used to account for about 11% of funding in 2016 and are now approaching 50% of global funding for, for AI startups. While China has potentially the most sort of ambitious government policy here, um, there is a clear and going competition between other countries as well. So South Korea, France, the UK, Germany and the EU have all announced national AI strategies um, since I first started talking about this stuff um, of over a billion dollars each. Um, and beyond that investment, France, for example, has announced that foreign takeovers of AI companies by US companies or Chinese companies will be subject to, to government approval. And uh, something similar is now being developed in the UK. So uh, this may have freaked you out a bit, um, uh, but I think that the, the, the impact for countries that are not the US and China is, is, uh, is actually probably one of the most concerning things if you're based somewhere like the UK. Because while the threats and rewards of forward-thinking AI policy at a state level are common across countries, the impact of machine learning is going to vary a lot depending on where you live. And the, the biggest factor here is that only America and China are home to the dominant AI companies, which are Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook, and Baidu, Tencent, and Alibaba. And national strategy really changes if you're the home of one of these countries versus just a customer state. Because these com companies are making absolutely insanely large investments in this area from custom silicon to frameworks to tons of consumer and enterprise products. And right now, they lead any state actor in their level of expertise. But at the same time, those com companies are contributing to a larger and larger share of their respective equity markets. So they're like more dominant economically. Um, in addition, they're paying less tax. The tax they're paying has declined by about a third since, uh, 20, since 2000. Um, and the tax they're paying outside of their home markets, for example in the UK, has declined even more. So this, this guy called Kai Fu Lee, who's a brilliant venture capitalist and early AI researcher, has laid out a pretty bleak view on how that plays out for countries like the UK or Senegal, who aren't the US or China. And he said, if most countries will not be able to tax these, these ultra-profitable AI companies of the US and, and China, what options will they have? 
I foresee only one. Unless they wish to plunge their people into poverty, they'll be forced to negotiate with whichever country supplies most of their AI software, China or the US, to be essentially become that country's economic dependent, taking in welfare subsidies in exchange for letting the parent nation's AI companies continue to profit from the dependent country's users. And in my view, that basically sounds like a new kind of colonialism. More worryingly still, so far the amount of uh, capital invested by um, states in this process is an order of magnitude less than the amount invested by those companies I mentioned. So McKinsey estimated that 20 to 30 billion is spent a year by those seven big tech companies. But right now government spending is, is a sort of a fraction of that. But I believe it will increase when they start to really, really realize what's at stake and not just see it as kind of a box ticking exercise against all the various other things they have to invest in. So for example, if the UK, rather than a box ticking exercise of having an AI plan where they're investing 500 million, invested something approaching the national defense budget of 45 billion, that would be the sort of thing that would transform the economics of this sector. So if that sounds far-fetched, consider again the parallel with nuclear weapons, where the US went from ignoring the key research scientists, like this brilliant guy, Leo Szilard, he approached the, you know, the Pentagon saying, we should, we should really be thinking about building a bomb, and they ignored him, ignored him, ignored him, and then they suddenly realized that he was right, and so they initiated the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project went from employing zero people in 1941 to employing 100,000 people three years later, developing industrial capacity, the scale of the entire US automotive industry, and spending $25 billion in three years um, in today's dollars. So while states can be slow and ponderous and cumbersome, when they start to move and they decide to move, they can move with an incredible momentum. And if that happens, the amount of money being spent on AI research and commercialization will go up 10 to 100 times over the next decade. And while it's not the case that more money always, in, it always kind of creates more progress. Um, I think it's prudent to assume that there's a possibility that these kind of race conditions and this amount of capital will fundamentally speed up the pace of progress in AI. So up until now, I've, I've tried to talk about what I think will happen. Machine learning will become a, uh, a critical differentiator between states, both economically, militarily, and technologically, and it will trigger an increasing arms race, which causes progress in AI to speed up further. Um, but there's a big difference between predicting something's going to happen and thinking it's a good idea. Um, nationalism historically has been a very dangerous path and it's particularly dangerous when um, international norms are in flux as a result. Personally, I think there is another way forward. Um, I believe that AI should be developed as a global public good accessible to all peoples of all countries. Um, and I think it should be modeled on things like GPS, TCP IP, the human genome sequence, or the English language itself, something we can all build on top of. And the best uh, long-term structure for doing that would be some kind of non-profit global project with government mechanics that reflect the interests of all countries and all people, something kind of like a cross between Wikipedia and the UN. Um, but that will require a kind of fundamental change in trajectory from the AI nationalism path we're on today. Thanks. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community from the business of fashion. BOF Professional members receive unlimited access to all of our articles, daily members-only analysis, the BOF Professional iPhone app, biannual print issues, and all of our online education courses as part of your membership. For a limited time only, we are offering BOF Podcast listeners an exclusive discount on an annual BOF Professional membership. 
To get 25% off of your first year, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special invitation code PODCAST2019 at the checkout. We hope you enjoy it, and don't forget to tell your friends.